My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the ICJ ruling on Israel and Gaza through the lens of the Western bubble, because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the ICJ ruling on, on Israel? Hi, Dario. Uh, well, first of all, it is a very recent topic that has been everywhere in the papers. On the day of recording today, it's only been two days since the ruling came out. And it is a brilliant example of the decline in the West. This is one of those moments where in the future case studies will be written about it because um, there are a lot of different aspects that show how the West is losing its grip on popular opinion at a global level, uh, geopolitics and all those kinds of items that we've been discussing extensively through episodes. Uh, I should probably point out though that we are not international lawyers, um, we don't have any legal degree, so we're looking at the politics behind it and the bubble consequences of this ruling, rather than the ruling itself, because that's not our expertise or specialization. And what are the facts? The International Court of Justice, ICJ, ordered Israel on Friday to take action to prevent acts of genocide as it wages war against Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip, but stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. The top United Nations court for handling disputes between states was ruling in a case brought by South Africa. The court ordered Israel to refrain from any acts that could fall under the, uh, under the Genocide Convention and to ensure its troops commit no genocidal acts in Gaza. Friday's decision related only to South Africa's request for emergency measures, which act like a restraining order while the court considers the full merits of the genocide case, which could take years. What is the bubble? So when we talk about this case in particular, um, I think at first we, we need to talk, discuss our general understanding of international law within the Western bubble, because, I mean, Western Western bubble and international law, those are, those are like two, two things that are very, very strongly linked to each other. Absolutely. I would even... Before that, I would even go one step wider and uh, say that sort of the West has done a very good job and export, at exporting bubble thinking when it comes to international law. Um, in the sense that this isn't just exclusive nowadays to Western countries, this idea that international law is actually law. And what do I mean by that? Uh, because most people associate law with their state law, with their um, national law that they find in whichever country they live. They hear the word international law and they also think of something objective. They think that somehow their international law is a objective measurement of judging and um, doling out punishment, if necessary, of wrongdoers in the world. And it is, and it's absolutely not that. There is there are very few similarities in that sense between national law. I live in Spain. If I murder someone, then there is a clear process that will put me in front of a judge and put me in jail. Um, that is the same for anyone living in any country um, that has such a system. But at an international level, the system works completely differently. It is a set of conventions 
that countries can adhere to or not. They can ignore it or not. And most people don't realize that because they hear law. And psychologically, we just associate that with something completely different. We discussed an example of international law, I would say, a year ago when the ICJ ruled against Russia um, with, with regards to Ukraine. And the court ordered Russia to stop, uh, right, to stop acts of war against another sovereign country. And then Russia responded with, no, thank you. Um, I would like to continue this, right? So this is to the extent that we can enforce international law. We can't. We, we can't. I mean, if you're a small nation without many powerful allies, you're going to be punished more severely for breaking international law simply because of the geopolitics behind it. If you're a large country, or for example, you're Israel with very large supporters, with very powerful allies, then ignoring international law has absolutely no impact. And therefore, it is not law. It is a set of conventions that countries, it would be good if countries adhere to that because that brings order to the world. And in, for example, at a business level, international law has a lot of practical applications that are very useful. And most countries abide by it because it works from an efficiency perspective. However, that has nothing to do with the conceptualization of law as most people understand it. I think that's a very nice way of describing it. Um, they adhere to international law countries when it's useful, right? On a business level, it's very useful. I mean, I think one of the best examples I've seen for international law is the law of the sea, right? To what extent does a country's territory extend into the ocean? Uh, where's the economic exclusive, exclusive uh, zone? Um, and there, I seldomly hear about cases where this is actually problematic. And, and, and when we're talking about international law in Israel, this is where lately there have been some advancements, right, between Israel and Lebanon, uh, who, who never really could um, decide between uh, the, the international sea borders in front of their coast with regards to gas fields, uh, right? And there, you could see that both countries who are theoretically not friends at all, they actually adhere to international law because it's useful for them. Both of them want to actually use those gas fields for their own economic advantage. But when it comes to this case, the case of Israel versus Hamas in the Gaza Strip, particularly with everything that we've discussed in the last four months, then it's not at all useful to Israel. And that's the difference between me as a citizen living in Spain. It's irrelevant whether it's useful to me personally or not. I have to adhere to it. Otherwise, there is a mechanism that will kick in and I will go to jail. That's it. It has nothing to do with my voluntary... Uh, approach to any rulings. It's got nothing to do with whether the, I like the ruling or not. If a Spanish judge says that I murdered someone, then I go to jail. That's it. Mm, that's it. And when it comes to international law in the West, the West usually at least pretends to, to uphold international law, right? I mean, it, it has used international law in the past to advance its own interests. Um, we constantly talk about the West whacking a finger at other countries, and that's usually in connection with international law, saying, oh, country X should really adhere to international law more, or this is difficult with regards to human rights, which are part of international law, according to our very limited understanding of it. Um, but this case uh, kind of now at least uncovers that the West also sees international law as something useful sometimes and not so useful some other times, and it has become very circumventable. Yeah, and, and in, in that sense, in many ways, it's not surprising in itself that the West does it, because it's not the first time that the West has, uh, that the United States or European countries have defied international law, right? But 
it was part of the mechanisms set up by the West to basically create some global order in its own image, the thing that we've discussed a lot in this podcast, this idea of the West certainly since the Second World War, building up a structure where the world could be, you know, work together, but also to a certain extent be controlled along Western moral and uh, geopolitical interests. And the fact that um, now the West is so blatantly comfortable with saying, oh, you know what, uh, Israel has a right to defend itself because we're fighting terrorists and we're going to ignore whatever um, legal pronouncements come out from The Hague, is, of course, uh, them admitting that the emperor has no clothes, that it, it was just a practical structure put in place, but it's got nothing to do with objective morality. It's got nothing to do with... Um, all the beautiful stories that they like to tell us about international law. Now, the, the other groups that, that obviously are very interested in this kind of um, pretense when it comes to international law are advocacy groups, because advocacy groups can say, look, uh, here's a ruling that is in my favor. That means that the other side is evil. Fine. But again, it has nothing to do with law in the way that we think of it at a state level. Which is different, I would say, for the ordinary citizen, right? If you ask now to an average citizen here on the street in Berlin or in Madrid, um, is the West abiding international law? Does the West respect international law? How important is international law for you? The answer will be yes, yes, and very important. Absolutely, because we in the West like to think of ourselves as law-abiding citizens, not just at a domestic level, but also globally. We think of ourselves as peaceful nations who just bring prosperity to the world and who are fighting the bad guys. And of course, law is on our side. And then when we hear that there's such a th about such a thing as international law, then obviously we expect ourselves to form part of that and abide by that. But that's the average citizen that doesn't actually know much about it. Um, then they see a international law professor on the news talking about it and uh, they get even more convinced by that because that's another group of people who like to pretend that international law is real and practical. The, the professionals who every day push for international law, right? Human rights lawyers, etc., etc. And understandably so. So there are, all these, there are all these interest groups plus the general public who like to pretend that it is actually something objective and something that can be applied to everyone equally worldwide. In reality, uh, it's far from that. And there's a wide range of reactions to this ruling in particular. Um, I mean, immediately, uh, right, as you said, advocacy groups on both sides actually jumped on it, right? So the ones on... Uh, let's say the pro pro uh, well not the, the pro Palestine side said oh there you go right Israel is doing a lot of things wrong and it has basically been ordered to stop but not with regards to a ceasefire and then the other side said well I mean there we go the court didn't rule in like rule that this is a genocide what Israel is doing but the only thing that it certainly ruled is that Hamas has to release all the hostages right so you immediately have both advocacy groups on both sides. Um, interpreting this, this this ruling in their own favor. Absolutely. And I would once again encourage people to sort of then compare that to how it would work at the national level. Imagine that a murderer gets convicted by a judge and straight away you've got the family of the murderer making one statement, trying to swing it in positive terms and, the other, and saying, we want to bite by it. Of course, that is nonsense. That's why I, I've made this 
case many times in class, I wish that we would stop using the word law and just uh, use words such as conventions. And then we can say, hey, this convention is working in my favor or this convention needs some um, further further thoughts. Uh, we need to we need to improve on it a little bit rather than continuously having this weird disconnect between the word that we hear and the reality that we see. What was interesting, particularly from a German perspective, is that uh, right the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, actually studied one year of international uh, humanitarian law uh, at, at LSE. Um, and Germany is one of those countries that very much believes in this notion of international law. So she immediately called on Israel to actually respect right that kind of, because it wasn't a ruling, right? It was a first first reading in that sense. Uh, as, as I said in the fact sheet, the actual case is going to take years until uh, it's, it's finally decided in that sense. Um, but uh, Baerbock then, then was very quick to say, okay, yeah, you know, these few measures have to be respected and have to be implemented. But she was really the only one who saw it that way uh, because then we very quickly had Israel say, no thanks. Of course, the moment that that is your uh, reaction, so, so she, she was almost naively applying her knowledge to, to reality, right? To, to what she, she, she wanted the world to look like. Um, and then the moment that Israel then says, you know, okay, um, sorry, but uh, as we already announced, by the way, in the weeks leading up to this, because Israel has been very clear through its spokespeople that they saw this case as frivolous, etc., etc. Uh, the moment that Israel says, no, no, thanks, then that's it. <laughs> There's not no one, especially because Israel has the support from the United States and European countries, um, no one um, is going to do anything about it. And the result, of course, is that... that It just is one extra addition in the criticism towards Israel. It, that's why advocacy groups obviously like it, because they can say, look, there's now a ruling, but it has no practical and certainly no legal uh, effect. Right. And just to put this, well, I, I think this is a very interesting case study, particularly the one of Annalena Baerbock in Germany here. Uh, and apologies to the listeners that you have to listen to me rant about Germany all day, all day long. Um, but I'm going to read out the entire quote by Annalena Baerbock because I think it's really telling of which of which direction she's going and the limbo the West has to basically undergo while interpreting this uh, this ruling. So there's, this, this tape is made up of three parts and I'll start with the first one and I quote, The International Court of Justice has not ruled on the main substance of this matter but has ordered provisional measures in relation to the request for the indication of such measures. But these two are binding under international law Israel must adhere to the court's order. And I pause here. Uh, right, and this is this is already it, right? This is it. Uh, these are binding under international law. Uh, no, they're not. Not in that sense. Uh, they, they, that's the thing. There's nothing binding under, under international law. It very much essentially depends on this ruling. Are there powerful nations that are willing to implement it, as in punish the perpetrator? And are there powerful nations that are going to defend the perpetrator? Now, in this case, there are plenty of nations that are willing to defend the perpetrator, the United States, Germany, uh, other European countries. And there are very few powerful nations that are willing to actually defend or to, to actually uh, implement the ruling, to actually say, okay, now we're going to punish Israel if they don't comply with this ruling. And that is exactly how international law has been working consistently, right? 
Now, we will later talk about kind of the, the larger IR consequences. There are certain consequences to this ruling, and also it is very symbolic of this decline of the West. But that is more a long-term, vague process. And right now, there is nothing, nothing practical, certainly nothing legal coming out of any of this. Not at all. It's, if anything, it's a bit more, right? It's a bit more helping the West in its uh, rhetoric because let me continue with the quote here. And I quote, the court also made it clear that Israel's actions in Gaza follow the barbaric terror of the 7th of October and pointed out that Hamas too is bound by international humanitarian law and must finally release all the hostages. And I paused the quote, right? I mean, so still kind of, caught up in the fact that international law is binding and Hamas as a non-state actor, right, is bound to is bound to it too. But at the same time, kind of taking the step back and saying that, hey, Israel is legitimate in, in what it's doing, right? Yes, Israel was attacked and therefore they are allowed to, to wage war on Hamas in this setting and everything in the West uh, makes perfectly sense. Which is fascinating because Hamas shouldn't even be mentioned in these kinds of uh, speeches or quotes, right? Or these kind of... Uh, the Hamas, as you said, a non-state actor, is not part of international law. Um, the international law exists to check, to control, to limit Westphalian states and to make sure that their behavior falls within reason. Is not be doesn't become too destructive, doesn't become too whatever. And so... Uh, introducing Hamas into this conversation is irrelevant. The question is... What is Israel doing? And are they allowed to do it? Should they stop? Those are the questions that has nothing to do with the nature of Hamas, has nothing to do with whether an organization that they're fighting is terrorist or not. The question is, is Israel functioning within the international order or not? Let me continue with the quote, because now we're moving on to, I wouldn't call it a straight up lie, but it's getting close to it. And I quote, We will do everything in our power to support this, as well as the order to Israel to take immediate measures to enable the provision of more humanitarian assistance to Gaza, end quote. Right, and let me just remind the listeners, this is the foreign minister of Germany, who has just said, well, we will do everything in our power to support this, hence, aka the, right, the release of all the hostages, as well as the order to Israel to take immediate measures, and now you would, you would actually think for a second, ah, wait, immediate measures to do what well not to end the violence right not to not to basically stop the the killing of people but no we're only talking about the provision of more humanitarian assistance to gaza the limbo that she's going through in this sense is i think a perfect case study of the western of what the west is doing with with as a response to this ruling and it reminds me very much of the way that certain countries um also my country and the UK and the United States, how they've consistently behaved voting within the General Assembly of the UN when it comes to ceasefires and all that, right? I mean, I, I always feel that Germany should get a little bit of a free pass. I mean, you're critical of Germany because it's your country, but because of history, I always kind of admire Germany for, you know, for at least being very sensitive when it comes to its history and very aware of, of its past. But countries like the Netherlands and countries like the UK and the United States have no such excuse. And the fact that they've consistently refused even to vote for simply saying, can we please help um, some humanitarian assistance? And can we please 
make sure that no more children have to die in Gaza um, is for me a huge sign of how the West completely lost its moral compass and, and has have lost their, um, their link to the rest of the world, right? The rest of the world looks at that as led by South Africa in this specific case. And they're saying, hang on, we we cannot stand by. We need we need to do something practical about this. And nothing of this has to do with the right of Israel to get back its hostages, to, to, to protect its own population, to fight a potentially terrorist organization. Um, it, the West has lost its marbles in that sense. They have completely confused their support for Israel and their deep understanding of anti-Semitism because of its own criminal past, the Holocaust and 2000 years of anti-Semitism, they completely confused that with a reality where they are not doing anything about the fact that children every day are dying and that the whole population in Gaza has its livelihood destroyed. And, And to me, that is something that is both fascinating and horrifying. It's fascinating because these are normal human beings in the Netherlands, in the United States, in the UK. Uh, They are not psychopaths. So it's fascinating psychologically how they make these leaps. And it's horrifying because it means that my society is responsible, at least partially so, for uh, the violence that continues. What's the international relations context? On a global level, this has certain consequences, right? This ruling, but particularly the Western reaction to it. And the consequence is very clear, is that international law is irrelevant in that sense, right? Irrelevant when we're talking about actual consequences on the ground. But more importantly, it means that the pretense of of how much the West cares about international law is absolutely dead. Yeah, they... They can no longer next year um, say to China or to Russia, hey, you have to follow this ruling (laughs) if there is something anti-Russian or anti-Chinese coming out of any kind of international system, right? So they they can no longer pretend that they are the knights in shiny armor who respect the world order, who respect everything that uh, the global organizations that they themselves created stand for after something like this. Because if they don't, deeply respect they, they, they can say hey we we we, we believe that their the ruling should have been different but now the ruling is here and we're going to respect it that's the way that you react constructively to um, something that you disagree with but the fact that they say it's not just that we disagree with the ruling but now we're going to basically ignore it that means that basically they open the floodgates and from now on every other country in the world can just point to this moment and say, hey, you ignore that ruling, we're going to ignore our ruling, thank you very much. So that is that is, that is a major, major issue. Um, on top of that, it also shows that the West has become increasingly disconnected from those institutions that they build up. They build up those institutions during time periods that they were confident of their own power. They believed that they could control global institutions, including international law, to advance their agenda. By 2024, it is completely clear that that agenda is now uh, not powerful enough anymore to actually boss international organizations around the global south, or whatever you want to call it, South Africa, Nigeria, Brazil, India, China, 
uh, all of them have stood up and said, no, we are now going to use those institutions for our own good. And the West is is left with nothing. They are left with uh, organizations that are no longer respecting them. They don't respect those organizations themselves. And um, they have lost the moral high ground if they ever had it in the first place. Right, if they've ever had it in the first place. Because, I mean, if, if you... I've always... I mean, also during my studies, right, I always looked at international law as kind of like a cute addition to my curriculum, right? It was like, oh, it's nice to learn about this, nice to learn about the different numbers in the international law of the seas. It's good to know that there are certain guidelines and conventions for how to do war. Um, but I never took it that seriously, right? And that might be personal ignorance. And I've had intense discussions with friends uh, and, and colleagues uh, who very much believe in international law. But this, the fact that international law has no relevance to the world of international relations in that sense, to me, the, the main example I like to bring up is uh, not is not exactly about the ICJ, but it's about the ICC, right? The International Criminal Court. Um, and uh, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite US, uh, US acts or laws is the American Service Members Protection Act also known as the, the Hague Invasion Act. Balder, how do you feel about the fact that in case a U.S. soldier was on trial in, at the ICC, which is also in the Netherlands, um, that uh, the United States <laughs> reserves the right to invade <laughs> your, your beautiful country and just uh, and, and basically take the, take the American soldier back to the U.S.? Yeah, and I, I'm terrified. I mean, I, I've got my extra water ready to flee the moment that the Americans land. Um, no, uh, I, we should probably point out here to the listeners that uh, unlike the ICJ, uh, the United States is not part of the ICC uh, because exactly this, uh, they know that they're militarily very active and they do not want any of their military or other personnel ever being put in a spot that they have to be sent to the Hague. But it shows the idiocy, right? It shows the, it shows that U.S politicians, U.S. Congress, who actually um, are responsible for this, that they feel comfortable threatening, a, invading one of their closest allies. As I've said many times before, the Netherlands is the biggest lapdog of the United States when it comes to uh, foreign policy. Uh, one of their closest allies just to avoid being confronted with international law and justice so then you have to ask yourself is this is there anything that that we have to take seriously here when it comes to international law and justice and the answer is no the americans certainly don't they're willing to 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 invade the netherlands um they know that they will never allow their own people to be tried so why should any other country send their people to the icc why should any other country be okay with their uh, people being tried if this is not some kind of global um, authority that has the moral high ground and can you explain to our listeners what is the problem when we're talking about right what is the what are the damaging outcomes of this um and i've kind of started doing this a few weeks ago and i feel very strongly about it since um because we usually we talk about conceptual damages conceptual problems with the West's behavior. But maybe because 2023 was such a such, such a shitty year, right, with regards to the, the international uh, the international arena, 
Um, for me, the number one one number one damage here is still that uh, the violence hasn't stopped, right? Uh, on both sides, of course, but uh, mostly the the Israeli violence uh, towards the Gaza Strip. I mean, the the latest estimates kind of see it as twenty thousand people uh, who who are dead and forty seven thousand people who are injured. We're talking about right entire families uh, being dead: mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, and so on. Who, who are gone and we're still experiencing enormous humanitarian suffering and I think that it's important particularly for us in, in the international relations bubble right, to kind of recount that once in a while and say yeah there's many many conceptual damages and problems with this but there's also very real life implications for people on the ground that we are very far removed from because we're sitting here recording a podcast in peace. Yeah, and uh, this is, of course, uh, the tragedy of all of this. All those moments, including um, basically the ignoring of a ruling like the one uh, from last week, um, all those moments contribute to an environment in which the violence continues. In, and I, I always like this, this, this idea of an, an alien um, coming from outer space, doesn't know anything about our world, flies their little ship over our earth and sees um, the the horrible violence of um, the 7th of October and, and hundreds or thousand people uh, dead because of terrorist attack, goes, oh, this is horrible, this is awful, and then starts looking at how humanity completely loses its mind and starts killing tens of thousands of people as a result of that, lots of which children. Any objective kind of perspective says, hey, this isn't quite right. The fact that a thousand people died in one weekend surely doesn't mean that all of a sudden there's anything positive about tens of thousands of people and 50,000 people, uh, tens of thousands of people dying and 50,000 people getting in injured um, as a consequence trying to look for the people who were responsible for that initial violence. No rational analysis can justify that. And yet we are doing everything. And when I say we, the Netherlands, the countries that we've mentioned before, we are doing everything we can to allow the violence to continue. We can't even vote for a ceasefire to bring some humanitarian aid to a population that has been mutilated. And that is that is an enormous, enormous tragedy, but also a dark, dark part of our future history right in history books this will not be looked upon kindly uh, right when you whenever someone mentions aliens i immediately have to think about uh, neil degrasse tyson uh, right that uh, famous astrophysicist uh, and and he also uh, said before right i mean if there's intelligent life out there um i could imagine it looking at earth and thinking thanks but no thanks why why, why would i want to why would i want to be in touch with uh, with such a violent um concept right well like people race whatever whatever an alien would think of us well and what makes it in many ways worse and i i don't see enough uh, analysis of this in in the media is that so an alien could say okay there are some confused individuals walking around on the planet who kill uh, innocent civilians like uh, the hamas attacks uh, that's horrible i hope that they do something about it because terrorism is awful right? That, that's reasonable. That's a very reasonable position to take. And to say either they are disturbed mentally or they are religiously um, just deluded. But the those tens of thousands of people dying and 50,000 people injured are caused 
by societies and the representatives of formal societies making this. These are not a, this is not a small group of crazy people. These are the representatives of hundreds of millions of people in North America, in Europe and in Israel who actually do this. And that would horrify that alien way more than noticing that there are a few rotten apples in human society, right? And that that makes it so difficult to observe and that makes it that makes 2023 but still now in January 2024 such a such a difficult period to be western and to say it's my society it's my representatives that aren't doing everything they can to stop that and how do we explain that to this alien we can't yeah i i i will maybe maybe a topic for another episode um <laughs> But but let's well let's uh, let's let's move from the damage that we do to to people, the damage that we do to potential aliens, um, onto the damage to the West. Uh, and I think I think I think this is probably because you're a professor, but you mentioned in our conversation before this episode that uh, I mean this is a great case study for any student who wants to write an essay about the demise of the West. Right. So the the path of the 1990s being the glory days of the West. And then when the Cold War was over, finished, and and then it seemed that the West had won history, to the West at least. Westerners thought that they had won history. They were deluded, but that was their perspective. And then from there, you draw a line to 2024, and you see a clear decline. You see a decay of not just Western power, but also any pretense of moral superiority or anything like that. You see the West on the decline. And there are certain moments in the timeline between, let's say, 1994 and 2024, where uh, there are clear case studies of the decline. And one of those case studies is uh, maybe the invasion of Iraq in 2003, a big one. But this is another one where you can clearly see how the West is no longer connected with the reality that most human beings on this planet uh, perceive. The West lives in its own bubble in this moment. In this situation, somehow terrified of ever being anti-Semitic again, which is a very good, by the way, let's never be anti-Semitic again. Let's be clear about that. Terrified of its own ghost from the past, haunted by its own crimes from uh, the 1940s, etc., etc. And as a result, they're completely disconnected from the reality that the majority of the global population perceives. And so it's a very good case study in the future to study. Like, what did this represent? A West can that does this can no longer pretend to have a global leadership role. They're certainly not morally superior to anyone else. Uh, they're certainly not more peaceful than China that is trying to bring some sense to the situation. They're certainly not more peaceful than um, South Africa that is actually trying to use their own systems to bring some order to uh, what's happening in Gaza. And um, I'm afraid that more and more the, the West is going to get confused with itself and with its role in history. And the more we will see these kinds of case studies until one day people in the Netherlands, in Spain, in Germany and in uh, the United States wake up and see a world that has moved on away from them and that no longer has any interest in what the West has to say. And what now? And this behavior is also damaging towards Israel, where I mean, it's it's it kind of it's enabling the forces within Israel that are very much pro-war, right? Um, 
Because if the West had reacted like maybe it would have reacted 20 years ago when it comes to international law, um, maybe the West would have said, okay, Israel, um, un until you have implemented these measures, there will be no more military support from us. And uh, we will, uh, we will I don't know, we will put a convention to the UN General Assembly, um, right, um, and basically, basically vote, vote, vote for it. Uh, and this time you will be isolated on the world stage. However, as soon as you kind of follow these uh, these orders by the court, we will be by your side again, right? So that could have been a reaction. Um, however, now we are the we're in a position where Israel feels emboldened enough, and most importantly here, obviously Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu, to tweet uh, something um, which is which I'm going to quote now. Quote. Nobody will stop us, not the Hague, not the axis of evil, and not anybody else, end quote. I mean, I think it's hilarious that he puts the Hague, the axis of evil, and everybody else in the same sentence. Um, that's, that's, uh, that tells you a bit about, about his mentality right now. But he can only afford to, to tweet something like this out because he has the support by the West. And it's incredibly damaging to Israel, ultimately, because it's not making Israel safer. Yeah, and in, in, in some ways, again, and this might sound weird, but... In some ways, I've got a little bit more, not sympathy, because the violence is, you can't have sympathy for this violence, but a little bit more understanding of where Israel comes from, because Israel f is traumatized by the attacks. The attacks were incredibly traumatic, just like the United States in 2001 was enormously traumatized by 9-11. Israel right now is a traumatized nation. And it's not just traumatized by the attacks of October in itself, but because they represented something that they um, have had their state face the threat of attack, the, 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 the threat of Jewish people being killed since the inception of Israel and the enormous trauma of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust from before the inception of Israel. So in some ways you can understand, not justify, understanding is not the same as justify, but it's easier to understand where Israel's coming from, for me, than where the Netherlands or the United Kingdom are coming from, right? Just like I had a little bit of sympathy for Germany, I've got a tiny bit of sympathy for Israel in that sense, much more than Dutch sympathy or American sympathy or British sympathy. And that is one thing to understand where they're coming from, but then the question is actually, what are they doing? They're damaging themselves very, very deeply. Because through this trauma, and we know this from at an individual level as well, if you've got a person who's traumatized, they sometimes do crazy stuff and they do violent stuff and they harm themselves and they harm them surround their surroundings. And Israel's harming itself, not just its surroundings, but for decades Israel has been building up a new position in the world order, trying to connect to China, trying to connect to Russia, trying to connect to India, to South Africa, to Nigeria. And now that is all collapsing because of this traumatic lashing out at the Palestinians. I think it's really important what you're doing here, right? Um, because it is easy to, and, and obviously because it's international relations, we always talk about Israel, Germany, the Netherlands, right? I mean, we're talking about governments and we're talking about governments, right, that are not a group of crazy people. Those are normal people who happen to be caught in bubble thinking. Um, there's deep psychological patterns going on uh, on right on an everyday basis and right we are right we are, we're not talking about israel in that sense right we're not saying that everyone in israel is evil just as we're not saying everyone in gaza is evil right that that in general in fact hardly anyone in israel is evil i i, I would say so 
Like everywhere in the world, there might be a few psychopaths running around, but it's not that many. And uh, that's the reason why I also think it's important to highlight the other voices, uh, because one of the 17 judges on uh, the ICJ, uh, ICJ's bench in, that's, uh, in, in, in this decision uh, was Israeli uh, by the name of Aaron uh, Barak, an, an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor and former president of the country's Supreme Court, right? And uh, he voted in favor of two of the emergency measures, basically ordering Israel to curb uh, incitements on to genocide and to ensure aid that can enter uh, Gaza, right? And that kind of tells you that the world is not all evil in this sense, right? That there are people who um, out there who will still like, kind of like vote with, with, well, who will just do their job because, I mean, ultimately he's a judge, I hope he's not uh, politically influenced. Maybe, maybe he was. Maybe there were attempts, but ultimately he voted for two of these measures, uh, where he said, "Okay, this is really uh, important uh, in this case," and uh, I think that's just a right. I think it might be a nice addition here um, and kind of kind of creating a rounded up picture of who are we talking about when we're talking about Israel, um, right? There's also plenty of voices uh, in the Netherlands, there's you, right, uh, who's saying, stop doing this, Rutte. I would say there's there's me here in Germany who's saying this. And that the majority of people out there are good, um, but maybe are very much caught up in their own bubble. And I, this is also the same for me when I see uh, people in my network, right, posting on social media about this, because some of these quotes that I've given earlier about going to one or the other direction of that of that uh, of this court order we're very much caught up in bubble thinking but these are not bad people and this is continuously the 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 painful observation that you have to make when you look at these conversations and you see this at universities you see this everywhere right this simplification of reality not trying to understand but continuously creating this narrative of good versus evil. And if you say anything sympathetic or anything positive about Israel, then you're responsible for genocide. If you say anything positive or sympathetic towards Palestinians, you are on the side of terrorists. Uh, and it that kind of dynamic continues the destruction, continues exactly the pain and suffering that we've observed over the past four months. And it's getting worse. And it's very good, but also kind of logical to see an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor to take a more measured approach. And to say, I love, I mean, I don't know, I assume that he loves Israel and he loves his country and he's incredibly proud of Israel, but he's also capable of seeing reality. And that doesn't make him hate Israel. That doesn't uh, make him believe that Israel is in itself a source for evil. But he sees the destruction that is being caused. At the same time, uh, any reasonable person can understand that Israel is a country that has a very specific history. And when something like the 7th of October happens, that triggers a very specific emotional, psychological reaction where a lot of pain from the past comes out again if you do, if you cannot connect to that if you cannot see that then you will never be able to be part of the solution you will always just continue this insane destructive us versus them narrative on whichever side you are mm -hmm. which is ultimately facilitated by the west and uh, that's a that's a big problem the west should stop Absolutely, and 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 the West has played this game also outside of the whole Israel thing, right? This is what we've discussed: the, 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 this 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 insane narrative of democracy, good authoritarianism being evil, and that's it. As if that explains everything. 
the West likes to play this game a lot, but we as human beings anywhere around the world have this insider-outsider system in our psychology. We create tribalism in our minds and it is it makes it much more difficult for us to understand the other. The othering of, of tribes outside of our own means that we simplify the world into a very destructive narrative. And unfortunately, this case has been a very clear example of that. This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the ICJ's ruling on Israel and Gaza. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it for my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I thought it would be good to take a quote from one of the founding fathers, if you like, of modern-day Western society, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who said, At his best... Man is the noblest of all animals. Separated from law and justice, he is the worst. <laughs>